0: In 1973, a group of Indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of Indigenous art.
1: That was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space and
0: galleries for Indigenous artists in Canada and around the world.
1: That was really a rock star moment for me.
0: I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the Professional Native Indian Artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome.
1: Welcome
0: to Art Slice. A palatable serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Dwight. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Russell Shoemaker. Stephanie, how are you doing today? I'm flipping you off. I know you're flipping me off. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Today we'll be discussing Seiichi Hayashi's graphic novel, Red Colored Elegy, from 1970.
1: Wellethy, wellethy, wellethy. <laughs> methinks, me methinks that I put yonder book... Betwixt your outstretched palms Some fortnights ago
0: (laughs) Went in a totally different direction I I I don't
1: know what I'm saying Anyway, I gave it to you It's a graphic novel It took you forever to read it What's up? Did you read it? You read it?
0: Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah. What were your initial thoughts? What were my initial thoughts? Yeah, your initial thoughts. This is different.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what did you think about like reading a story and looking at the images at the same time? That's always difficult for me.
0: I uh, I, I, I felt overwhelmed. A lot of me reading this was trying to decipher the, the visual language because of the way he illustrates or draws right. the scene. I'm like, what is this supposed to be? Yeah,
1: It's almost like you're reading the visual language more than you're reading the story.
0: Well, it's kind of like an abstract... It starts to get like an abstract painting. Absolutely. So, yes, that, his visual language, it's quite unique. Okay, so I guess we'll just get into it? Yep,
1: let's do it. All right, so listeners, we are going to maybe spoil a bit of the plot for you. I Honestly, my opinion, in my opinion, Stephanie, I don't know if you agree with me, the story really isn't the most exciting thing about this comic book. It is not. I agree. I think... You could listen to this podcast. You could go buy the book from Drawn and Quarterly, which is the publisher, and you would still get a lot. You would have a totally different experience reading it if you hadn't read it before listening to this podcast.
0: Agreed. This book is worth it just for the visual language alone. So we actually cite lots and lots and lots and lots of sources, (laughs) um, but for this particular graphic novel... Most of it actually came from um, Ryan Holmberg.
1: I would say, yeah, probably a good 40% of what's out there on Hayashi is by Holmberg. So
0: give him a little shout out. Yeah,
1: I I just don't think he was very well known in the Western world, of course. Hayashi was not very well known in the Western world. And like we said, this was published in the 70s, so um, it was only recently published in America. So listeners, remember, uh, head on over to our Instagram page, at Pod to see some of the images from this novel, or artsizepod.com.
0: All right, before we get into uh, Red Colored Elegy, which is set in the late 1960s in Tokyo, let's talk about some background. So Japan is rebuilding from being decimated by the U.S. in World War II. Leading up to the war, Japan was a militarized force to be reckoned with. So since the late 19th century, they had been rapidly industrializing, and they took advantage of this by colonizing and controlling several islands, as well as controlling a large portion of China, which I did not know this. Manchuria. So they got bold, and they bombed Hawaii, (laughs) Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and the Philippines, targeting... U.S. and ally bases.
1: I think we all know uh, how that ended.
0: Yeah, the U.S. retaliated by bombing Hiroshima. Uh, Yeah. War is something that is slippery and hard to place a moral compass on. I mean... It isn't, it isn't, right? But
1: well, I, I think we could perhaps say that the US uh, overreacted oh, in their that, uh, retaliation. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Still, it wasn't until Russia closed in on Japan controlled Manchuria that they decided to admit defeat. Mm. So that. Came as a shock to the Japanese citizens that were listening to this on their radios in the 1940s.
1: So, Japanese citizens at this time they were very similar to American citizens. A lot of the country is predominantly middle class. The recent war aside, you can imagine that they they were just like us. They like to eat meals together, go watch movies, <laughs> and I don't know if you all at home can imagine that, but in seconds that all changed.
0: So, to to be more clear, they surrendered, and the U.S then came in to Occupy.
1: Yep. Just like they did in Berlin with the Allies. Side note,
0: I did not know this. Oh, you didn't? No. Interesting. Blew my mind. Yeah, it would teach you that in history. Nope. Never read this (laughs) in any of my history books, that's for sure. As you can imagine, this just completely threw the country into a tailspin, right? They're kind of having like an existential crisis.
1: So I know America helped Japan rebuild and they also... After they blew a
0: mob, I think that's the least they could do. Yeah, Uh,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. They, I think, forced them to change their their government to more of a democracy. So, in in maybe in that situation, that was maybe a good thing.
0: So, with every good thing, there are a lot of bad things, right? Of course. So, quick trigger warning: there was a proliferation of sexual assault on Japanese citizens by the U.S. troops.
1: Yeah, I think the uh, Japanese government actually created brothels
0: for the US troops. Just so
1: the US troops That's wouldn't wild. rape and pillage their women, I That's guess.
0: Wild. Yeah. Okay. So there was also a forced partial deindustrialization mm. which I mean that just totally reduced the standard of living for the citizens. God. So naturally there was a rise of alcoholism and a rise of crime. Uh, yeah. Right. Would, you take away uh, I would and that. yeah. Right. So during the American occupation, comics known as manga in Japan, began to flourish. Manga was already beginning to grow in popularity before World War I, but now that censorship laws had been lifted in Japan due to the American occupation, artists could make, for the most part, whatever they want to do. So that was one of the changes that Americans brought with them, right? They're like, no more censorship mm. and have some democracy. A little bit. You get a car. You get a car. <laughs> well, they would, yeah, they weren't doing that. I know. They were like, you can say what you want, but we're going to build this military base. <laughs> I'm like crying a little bit. I'm laughing like I'm crying for them. Okay. So the effects of the post-war economic recovery were still present. And the interest in manga was further propelled by the fact that it was easy to produce and distribute no matter the state of the economy, right? Right.
1: It's on this this very thin paper. Right. Uh, you can still buy like these thick phone books of manga today. I
0: was going to say, is it like phone books? Do listeners know what
1: phone books are at this point? or some of you too young? A phone book is basically, imagine your phone. Then newspaper. Imagine your cell phone. And then imagine if you need to look up... anything you have to consult a big thick
0: book uh, with very thin paper pizza plumber electronic store yep all that stuff like shuddering (sighs) anyway manga is cheap to make right so it's printed only in a single ink color on thin paper it became a popular method to express oneself artistically or in some cases also express the mixture of emotions that the japanese were feeling
1: It was uh, escapism from a very tumultuous time. Escapism. What did I say?
0: Escapism. I didn't say escapism.
1: Yes, you did. No, I did not. Yes, you did. No, you're hearing things.
0: All right. So manga would prevail as long as there was a hand and a story to create the message. All right. Moving right along. The biggest name associated with manga is Osamu Tezuka. And he was already a well-known manga illustrator and writer. The popularity of manga came to a boil with his Mighty Atom. Mighty Atom. Or, (laughs) as we know in America, Astro Boy. With an I. So Tezuka's Astro Boy, among some of his other works, they set the stage for manga, as we know today. So much like Disney had been so inspirational for animation in America, Tezuka was known as the father of manga. So he... This man is responsible for those big, wet, glossy eyes. Uh, That you know and love. That almost all anime characters are known for. And actually, uh, his
1: influences were Disney. He would watch Disney films as a kid. Apparently, he also heard
0: about Betty Boop. So if you look at Betty Boop and Mickey Mouse, it looks like Astro Boy is their child. (laughs) What was that? What? <laughs> By the early 1960s, manga is a huge industry in Japan.
1: There is a genre of manga specifically for boys. And for girls. Both are selling well. And uh, as these kids grow up, these kids that grew grew up on manga, um, they want some manga... F- for adults. For adults. For themselves.
0: They've grown up and they want more. Yeah. So along with the popularity of manga, the counterculture, remember this, r- reaches Japan. So the counterculture was a worldwide phenomenon. Okay, not just in the U.S. like it's happening everywhere, but in Japan, the influence of the Americans made it easier for Western influences to yeah. make their way into the culture. Right? So there was so,
1: trade, of course, but you could imagine that the U.S. and Allied troops were probably leaving like movies and comic books and stuff like that, just it was, leaving it on the street. Yeah, yeah, Here, yeah. Everybody,
0: exactly. Come, come and get it while it's hot. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix LPs, you know. So that's where you find your best stuff is on the street. Okay, all right, we're gonna move. We're going to move on. There are protests, there are riots, there are drugs. Japanese women are cutting their hair short. Couples are
1: less and less likely to end up in arranged marriages, and they're even starting to shack up with one another.
0: Shack up. (laughs) So Japan is at a political crossroads. The counterculture had inspired Japanese youth to lean into opposing radical political ideologies, okay?
1: So the uh, art slice reoccurring themes of socialism, communism, anarchy...
0: Yeah, that also shows up in their art. ...starting to show up in their work as yeah. well. Weird how that happens. Interesting.
1: So at this time, there's all kinds of manga, right? Like, we discussed that. But alternative manga is becoming a thing. A manga that's made for adults. uh manga that has, like, horror, that has, like, Marxist power struggles.
0: There's sexy manga. Yeah,
1: there's sexy manga. There's horror sexy manga. Uh, really just...
0: all. all. All sorts of stuff, and this is where we find Hayashi in the middle of all of this angsty turmoil. He was born only months before the bombing of Hiroshima. He was born in Manchuria, which was that portion of China that we mentioned earlier Um, that uh,
1: Russia closed in on during the World War II.
0: That Japan had colonized, yes. So his family flees, but his father and his sister die. Mm. um, And he lives through the American occupation. All through this, he's reading manga. So we can imagine that he finds some comfort and inspiration from this, right? He grows up, and he decides that's what he wants to do. He wants to be an artist. So he goes to the Nippon Design College in Tokyo. Shortly after college, he finds a job drawing cells at an animation studio. Oh!
1: Did you hear that? Yep. I think it's a... What the... I think it's an art pantry mon.
0: It's the sound of an art pantry quickie. No, it's an art pantry mon. I think you're seeing things. No, you don't hear that? No, I don't. Maybe
1: I can only see it. Anyway, I'm going to go catch that because you're supposed to catch them all. You do the art slice pantry quickie.
0: All right, let's do it. All right, listeners. So for today's art pantry quickie, we are going to talk about cells, C-E-L-S. So cells are basically the foundation of hand-drawn animation. It's short for celluloid acetate, which is just a transparent plastic sheet. If you're of a certain age, you'll remember teachers using transparencies on projectors in school. So same idea. Animators would draw the image on one side and then add color to the other side to avoid brush marks. A single production could take up to thousands of these cells, and they had to be of a certain size to fit in the camera frame. Cells are pretty much obsolete now with computer technology, replacing them almost completely in the early 2000s.
1: Thank you, Stephanie, for that uh, incredible art slice pantry quickie. I got my my pantry mom. I caught them. We're ready to go. Good. Good, great So Hayashi insists that uh, Red-Colored Elegy is not an autobiographical story, but I think it's pretty clear that in the story it definitely overlaps with his life and maybe like some of his friends' lives.
0: In one of the opening pages of Red-Colored Elegy, we see the young male protagonist and a fellow animator.
1: Do you know the main character's name, Stuff Ichiro? Sorry, listeners in advance, if you speak Japanese, we're probably going to butcher some of these things. So sorry, so sorry. So sorry, we don't mean to, we don't mean to. he's speaking to another artist and they're discussing what they did in college and what they what their like passions are what they want to do and the non-main character the other character that we don't see again says that he was a painter and he wanted to be an artist but you can't live off of being an artist and the scene behind it is it really kind of looks like a rundown area of Tokyo it's mostly like a river, and then you get some bits and pieces of houses that maybe don't seem like they're in disarray, but they're I would say they're starting to get a little bit dilapidated. Yeah, they look a little dilapidated. The scene below it has this enormous jet. It looks like a military jet flying by. And I I start to wonder, this is a reoccurring image in the novel, if these jets represent sort of a memory. Like trauma, possibly. Or just growing up when there was a military occupation and sort of still feeling that oppressive presence in their lives. That is... Interesting. Compare that to the fact that they're talking about making a living in this new economy. It just feels like he's working on a couple of different emotional levels here.
0: Right. I also think that the scene on top where they're walking, mm-hmm. first of all, love their clothes. their flowy Japanese style <laughs> outfits. Love it.
1: Yeah, this does actually look, look
0: like how you dress. <laughs> I know, right? So they at least look comfortable, right? They're sad, but they're comfortable. The river or body of water is there. It's always been there, right? And then things are kind of dilapidated around it. So like he gave up on his dream. And so this is maybe a part of like a Visual narrative. I don't know.
1: I think it shows the social economic class that they either live in now.
0: Um, Can I just also say how lovely he has depicted the breeze in this? So across the river, the way that the brush or the trees are drawn, they're in one direction. They're diagonal. And then their hair is going the opposite direction. So you can just imagine that there's this wind, right? This summer yeah. wind that's whipping their hair around. But then you can also see some shadows that he's drawn on this, like, the city whatever it is and you can you can imagine that the trees are moving and they're right. shaking and they do that pretty thing with the the shadows and the sunlight I just exactly. think that's lovely and that's subtle though, right? And that's something you pick, that I picked up looking at it again. I didn't catch it the first time. Kind of like a foreign film, you have to watch it multiple times.
1: Hayashi's use of light and dark spaces is something that is very prominent in this book.
0: So throughout Red Colored Elegy, the entertainment industry casts a shadow on the lives of the two main characters hayashi drew from his own experience in the animation industry in the early 60s it was tedious work the pay was low
1: right kind of like those two characters talking like mm-hmm. it's a it's a living it's sort of adjacent to what they want to do which is art and we forgot to mention that in the third panel ichiro says that he wants to draw comics much like hayashi wanted to draw comics
0: yeah i was just caught up in the wind <laughs> in the summer wind so the animators at this time would work on full-length movies at a steady pace, and it was still difficult work, um, and it was actually about to get much more difficult. Hayashi was hired at an entry-level position, which in Japan is referred to as an in-betweener. So he was given a modest but livable salary.
1: An in-betweener is actually something that the uh, Japanese animation industry still uses today, and we will we will get to that. I
0: was gonna say, I don't... That, don't, that doesn't sound like a good thing. Osamu Chizuka. <laughs> Astro Boy? Um, remember him? I do. Astro Boy. So he shows up at a competing animation company to discuss bringing Astro Boy to life as an animated television series. Okay. All right. So today... A little, we...
1: little war between the animation industries in Japan. I'm ready for it. Get your popcorn. Mm-hmm.
0: Today, we think of an animated series as having about 20 episodes per year. Yeah,
1: your typical Simpsons season, what, like 22 episodes? Yeah, Spongebob. Okay. (laughs) I don't know.
0: Spongebob might have more. I don't know. That's all I have, okay? I wasn't like a huge cartoon. So, Astro Boy was looking at creating about 45 episodes per year at a weekly pace. Wow. That's scary. Sounds scary. So, this animation company is having a really hard time figuring out how to make this happen, how to make it profitable. And then they decide to cross-market it, right? So sell toys, sell candy, sell condoms. Just kidding. (laughs) Regardless of how they cross-market it, that still wasn't going to make up for all of the losses that they were anticipating from creating Astro Boy. Sure, they got to align their pockets. Right. So in a very capitalistic way, they decided to cut every corner. Cut the amount of cells they use to animate. Reuse cells. Reuse stock footage. And most importantly, stop paying the animators a salary. Instead, pay them by the drawing.
1: That, I'm sure that's, that'll work out well in the animators' favor,
0: right? They do a lot of drawings. I said capitalism. Do you remember oh, when I said right. capitalism? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. To put these episodes out weekly, animators are working for days straight. They're sleeping at their desks. They're definitely not bathing. <laughs> okay, so they do this. They do all of this. And then guess what? Astro Boy is a huge success. Okay. Um. So at the height of Astro Boy's popularity, it was being watched by 40% of Japan. Wow. Uh, versus... And you'll like this. Versus The Simpsons in the Mm. U.S. for comparison, at its height twenty seasons ago, its popularity averaged about seventeen percent of the TV owning population. Wow. This is for your slight decline in quality over the years. Almost overnight, the industry changes in Japan as other companies rush to keep up. So basically, overnight, those in betweeners basically became Uber drivers. Yep. Okay, they're paid by the ride. They're paid by the drawing. So often, (laughs) they were paid slave labor wages. So the famous animator Hayao Miyazaki is actually working at the same animation company as Hayashi at this time.
1: Miyazaki, of course, is a very famous animator. Films like, uh, what's the one we watched?
0: Oh my gosh, Spirited Away. Spirited
1: Away. That's the only one we've seen. Don't come at us. Don't come at us. We are. It was a brilliant film, though.
0: We are new, okay, but I just, we had to talk about this. This is pretty cool. And I just wanted to share it in the art slice way, listeners. Like Hayashi, Miyazaki also gets that sweet, sweet salary just before this rapid change. So, Miyazaki and Hayashi were very fortunate. They got in right before the capitalism hand rained down upon the animation industry. Both Miyazaki and Hayashi recall animation companies at this time working against labor unification. Which is pretty rare because
1: Japan has a pretty strong labor background.
0: Okay, you say that, but also they recall needing to take a leftist test (laughs) before being hired.
1: (laughs) So this is like when your uh, employer starts to scope out your social media before they hire you. Making sure that you're not liking uh, too many posts by Jacobin.
0: So if you think about it, it's even more abusive than it sounds because not all drawings are created equal. You might draw something simple that takes you like 10 minutes, but then you have to draw something way more complex, which will take you well over an hour.
1: And Astro Boy was pretty simply animated by animation terms. Japanese anime today It is very complex.
0: When you showed me um, Astro Boy, I was like, oh, how cute. Yeah, it's simple. They're like circles
1: and ovals. Like there's, I mean, I don't want to like minimize it. It's it's difficult to animate anything. Right. But Japanese animation today is amazingly animated. And it's all animated by hand. So imagine all those people getting paid peanuts.
0: Whether you're making a doodle or a very complicated animation, you're getting paid like a dollar. So naturally, morale in these animation firms tanked. Poo-poo.
1: So, and this is just for the men, right? So in the late 60s, jobs in Japan and really everywhere are still incredibly gendered. And while these animation firms started to, yes, hire women, uh, they did so more in a way that would exploit their labor.
0: Women were exclusively hired, basically a tier below the in-betweeners, If you would even have thought that was possible because you would think the in-betweeners were pretty low, but they were hired basically under them, right? So they would essentially finish the drawings. So
1: in animation at this time, they would have to do thousands and thousands of drawings and each drawing had a little bit of movement in it. So then they would have to ink all those
0: drawings, and then they would have to, if the animation was in color, they would have to color all those drawings. They would either clean them up or trace the pencil lines with ink, or like you just said, they would color in the drawings. And the way that these animation firms would find these women was to advertise in women's magazines and highlight the hobby and creative nature (laughs) of the job. Because the pay was nothing to brag about, right? Come on, come out of the home, ladies.
1: (laughs) Come explore your potential. Well, often they would actually do it from home as well.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Fun fact.
1: So that way you can, you know, take care of your babies. So
0: if you've (laughs) ever, if anything you've ever done has been called a passion project. Or an unpaid internship. That's just your boss trying to take advantage of your labor. Actually, listeners, we're looking for
1: an unpaid, passionate intern. Um, You can email your resume to artslicepod at gmail.com. That's artslicepod at gmail.com. We cannot pay.
0: Why are you whispering? Um, anyway, so this gives us some insight to the next page that we would like to highlight from Red Color Elegy, and as to why our two protagonists are living under the shadow of the entertainment industry.
1: In the story, right, these two young animators,
0: Ichiro, Ichiro, our main
1: our main man character and Suchiko find each other. They're under a cherry blossom tree in the first panel. Things are beautiful. They're running towards each other like you would in a romantic novel. And then right below that, in the second panel, is the classic Prince Charming lifts Snow White up out of her sleep,
0: her slumber.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So there's a reason why these two scenes are placed next to one another. Yes. For one thing, it's showing that these two found each other, they found love. But also, I think Hayashi's starting to hint at this sort of Disneyfication of what love is, what love should be. It's shown to us on movies, so this is what it should be. And it's also interesting because we, you know, as we know by this point in the story, both of these people... Work in the animation industry. So not only are they finding love, not only are they emulating those people in the movies that they would have animated for, but they're also feeling that pressure, that shadow of the animation industry. The
0: pressure from their jobs and the pressure, cliche love, maybe not knowing how to do it. I guess right. That's no, not funny. knowing how to do it. Yeah, like know how to. How do you do love? You know, like how do you? just some. I, I got some dirty oh, illustrations. I'll show you. Oh, okay, great, thank you
1: using popular culture is is nothing new. Like, he's done it in other books before. In another scene, I think even earlier than this one, we see Ichiro walking with a decapitated, like, goofy or Mickey character. There's, like, this blood sloshing around in his body. Like, it's this empty, like, ink vessel, basically like what you dip your pen in to ink with. And the Goofy or Mickey character is basically telling him, hey, you're getting ripped off at this animation firm. So it's it's really sort of setting up this abusive relationship that animation has with these,
0: these characters. Do you think he decapitated the character so he wouldn't receive a cease and desist from uh, <laughs> Disney? Like, oh, you can't tell which character it is, Thanks, in part, to when Hayashi was hired at this animation firm, he did not have to face the extreme difficulties that his uh, newer peers did. Yeah, it's crazy to think, like, sometimes it's just a matter of when you were born. So while this was all frustrating, sometimes it's during those frustrating times that you feel the most inspiration.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, So for Hayashi... The rapidly changing Japan of the 1960s offered him the opportunity to explore his craft, to create, to experiment, to take his experience, his life experience, um, yeah. politics, and twist them into sequential storytelling. <laughs> so like an artist. Definitely. It was around this time that he began to create what he would become known for, right? These weird, poetic, scattered, abstracted comic books. So kind of around the time that he was working at those animation firms. Right. He was making it work. Hashi was particularly inspired this time by the art house cinemas in Tokyo. So we can imagine he would leave his job mm. and head to the cinemas yeah. after work, like Tokyo um,
1: Drifter, that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, soaking it all in, or even Band of Outsiders.
1: Certainly, like you can see the disjointedness and the emotion. That I think a lot of new wave films had in and the, and the stylistic approach to the work as well. Like, if we're, if we're thinking about like Tokyo Drifter, that's a very stylistically rich film. Stephanie, what is new wave film?
0: Film basically before new wave was drawn out. You would see everything. Yeah. Everything. Whereas in new wave, they would cut to the chase, literally. There would be two actors speaking, and then it would just cut to the next scene, and they're in like, they're in a bedroom, like sitting on a bed. Like, gotcha. you didn't have to see them watching up the stairs, opening the door. Like, yep. you didn't have to see any of that. So that was and pretty- And that shows up
1: in, in Red Colored Elegy, for sure. There's a disjointedness to it.
0: Exactly. It's part of the visual visual narrative. That's something you're also trying to figure out.
1: Yeah. You're piecing things together. Yes. And not only are you piecing together a story, Hayashi also uses a variety of visual languages throughout the book, too. So he's not just always illustrating in a comic book method. So in some scenes, he's, like, tracing photographs in other scenes it feels a little bit more collagey. In some scenes he's using like very like hyper realistic pop art references like uh Godzilla. Yeah, like Godzilla <laughs> as we'll get to, or Snow White or, or Mickey Mouse without a head. So he's using all these different things, and you're kind of asked to piece together the story, not only from the story itself, but from those disparate elements.
0: Gotcha. So using the pop culture elements. So we talked about pop art in episode four. Jasper Johns. He was using the American flag, but in the way he was using it, he was reinterpreting the symbol. Yeah, he was leaving
1: it open to the interpretation of the viewer. Whereas with Hayashi, you kind of get those references, like you, you see those popular culture references... and and you kind of get your own impression of them, but he's also setting it up as like,
0: uh, this kind of means this. Yeah, and that's a layer to all of this. It's another layer. This is a very
1: dense and multi-layered graphic novel.
0: We're talking about how complex these these panels are, these images. Remember that he's using black and white It's all black and white. So that's awesome. That's amazing. You're not relying on color. So this kind of style of illustration and storytelling found a home at Garo Magazine. It was an independent manga magazine in Japan that was founded in 1964, and it was still extremely popular through the 1970s.
1: I think it actually lived independently up until the 90s, I read. That's until, awesome. Until like, a, a computer company bought it out and started putting advertisements in it, and people were like, nope,
0: <laughs> I read and it this died. anymore.
1: Yeah. Aww. It's like one of your favorite band Signs to a Major, label record. All of a sudden and their sound like, changes. Yeah, all of a sudden they're on like the Axe body spray tour.
0: <laughs> um, so like we mentioned before, after so many young people had grown up reading manga, there was a need for it as they grew older, right? So for the older audiences, they enjoyed the format, but they wanted stories that reached out to them as mm. adults. Um, so while many comic magazines did this, Gara was like, hey, that's cool and all, but were like a little bit different. So they weren't so interested in producing a specific type of comic. They were more interested in showcasing artists who were
1: making bold work. So once again, I'm not a manga expert. Stephanie is, so you should should talk to her. Nope. But Garo, from my understanding, was like the artistic, experimental manga magazine.
0: Garo was immensely popular, especially with this generation of disaffected animators that Hayashi worked with.
1: So and we actually see Garo referenced in red-colored elegy. Ichiro wanted to be a comic book artist, so throughout the early parts of the novel, he is drawing this comic book that he wants to share with this comic book company, which turns out to be Garo. Hayashi himself was turned down by Garo several times before he was actually published and basically the other animators that he worked with were probably submitting things to different magazines, including Garo, and getting turned down as well so this would have been really- Common story. Yeah, common story. Common experience. Exactly. And so what's happening in this scene, it's a full page. It's a full splash page. We see that airplane, once again, that airplane zooming on by. That presence of the airplane, it, it, it feels like a sensory memory. It's in an office space, but it's also an exterior scene. It's very crazy. Like The wall is the ocean. <laughs>
0: There's a curtain that's like swinging open but it's blowing out into the the breeze.
1: Yeah, once again like his weird use of weather and wind is like it doesn't necessarily it's not being blown by the airplane but it's kind of pointing at the airplane like it has an arm and then there's papers flying everywhere there's all these stacks of papers and they're just flying in the air as this airplane kind of blows them away and then the most interesting part is
0: the you know the faceless man Yeah, the man walking in from outside
1: (laughs) yeah walking in but this seems to be his office I feel like it, it shows the oppressive feeling that these people were feeling once again by referencing the airplane but also like if you've ever been rejected from something it kind of feels like there's just this faceless uh, gelatinous thing that's like orbiting the universe and just rejecting you it doesn't have a soul it doesn't have a personality it doesn't it's just a weight of rejection yeah or when you when you have one of those emotional moments and you you tune out certain details but affix on other details I think that's kind of being portrayed on this page
0: also uh you said this is an ocean but I feel like it's partially a field hmm. there are two figures playing like kickball but one oh, of the figures right. is decapitated.
1: Oh, uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. No,
0: it is. You don't they don't have a head.
1: Yeah, I guess it, I read it as ocean, but so maybe it, it's a field.
0: It could, maybe it could be both. Um what's the do you know what the text means in the window?
1: So it's translated. You can see it at the bottom. Sometimes they do this with manga. Uh it says I miss rejected.
0: That. I miss that. Yeah. Just a third layer to all of this. Not right. a big deal. Actual d- Japanese text.
1: So as the two young lovers, Ichiro and Tsuchiko, fight. They start to fight. It's that typical Which story. Time? Which time? Uh, time? Throughout the book. But <laughs> you'll see that when you read it. And eventually they part ways, right? But then he wants her back, yada, yada, blah, oh, blah, blah. That story... That story that you've seen in every fucking movie. But this was very revolutionary for the time in Japan. Right, you have to remember right, right. that. Are some very interesting things that happen as a result of that relationship falling apart. So, for example, there, there are cut scenes uh, through a, a series of panels over several pages where there is this Godzilla versus King Kong poster. So they're fighting and like not talking to one another. And then behind them is that poster of like Godzilla fighting King Kong. It's kind of like this representation of their relationship once again.
0: But it's literally like it's something that probably like could have happened. Like a couple could have been arguing in a restaurant, and there's just like this Godzilla poster behind them.
1: But it's also this very beautiful, once again, illustration. King Mm -hmm. Kong is almost just like an ink blob that's like jagged in some areas, and he's about to beat Godzilla over the head with that. And there's like this beautiful cloud of smoke happening and these grr lines. and, And Godzilla's like nuclear blast looks like just like a wispy, like, I don't know, tongue or something. What would you call that?
0: Yeah, a wispy tongue. Yeah. I like that.
1: <laughs> the composition is compressed in this weird way where it's flattened and compressed and like it's almost like a
0: collage. Yeah, it
1: almost feels like a collage, like he collaged these images together and then illustrated them.
0: I thought it was funny as I was watch like as I was see as I was watching them fight. Yeah, it feels like a movie, right? Uh-huh. Kind of- I was I was watching them fight, I was like, Ugh, and then I was like, Oh ha ha. like that's hilarious. Yeah, it they also, just show up out of nowhere.
1: Exactly. You'll have your typical comic book panel, 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 page. Page panel 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 page and then all of a sudden it will just break to these like beautiful like two page spreads or these beautiful one page like puzzle images where you're trying to piece together what the hell's happening in them so it's like you're just walking through your typical comic book although you know it is a little different than your typical comic book and then all of a sudden you're just facing this beautiful piece of art in front of
0: you i have to say that this um novel has piqued my interest i think i might read some more so do you think that the the Godzilla King Kong poster kind of adds to the mounting pressure yep. that we kind of feel throughout the novel? There's been this like
1: pressure mounting throughout the, you know, 100 or 200 or so pages before we get to this point. Like
0: a car crash that you can't stop. Yeah, you know something's coming. Yeah,
1: it's like a slow motion car crash. And in fact, Hayashi uses car crashes. He uses... Um, oh, that's right. The that's characters right. often shoot each other with finger guns. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's supposed to stand in for this emotion that they're feeling once again, interpreted through film. And so these sounds and these like waves. There's like all these waves in some scenes. They stand in for that that feeling or that sound of emotion once again, calling back to that airplane that we that we talked about in one of the first pages. Mm-hmm. Is to me the noise of that airplane, the oppressive sort of nature of that airplane feels like that that sound is standing in for a feeling that these characters can't describe yet. So the the whole world around them is is telling the story as well as the like story that's being told. Does that make Their sense? Their
0: environment, yeah. Aren't they crossing traffic at some point and they're like in front of headlights? Yeah.
1: yeah, there is a car that's about to crash into them, but it's not real because in the next frame, they're sitting on a grassy plane. So it's meant to represent a feeling, it's not actually happening. Would you say it's surreal almost? It's a little bit surreal, right? There's also this reoccurring motif of hands throughout the book. Several times one of the characters gets sick and the other one goes to help, they'll touch hands. It's meant to be this caring act, but then it also becomes this thing when they're pointing finger guns at each other and shooting each other with emotions. Like then it's like a, a violent act. Towards the end, as you'll see uh, on our website or on our Instagram page, uh, the hands are fidgeting by themselves. They're no longer pointing at one another, and they're no longer helping one another. They're they're these vacant hands. They're alone. Yeah.
0: They're also drawn kind of janky. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I also think it's interesting that there's a focus on hands since they're animators, right? right and their livelihood literally exactly. relies on their skill and their technical um, yeah. movements. H-
1: hands are made to express love. Hands are made to for to, your,
0: but literally like, to draw to draw your living. Yeah.
1: Stephanie. Yes. We're here. We've gone through this twisty corridor of hundreds and hundreds of black and white pages with lots of inky shadows and bright white spaces and motion lines and iconography. Yeah. We're here in the manga critique. Dungeon. We got Hayashi's red-colored elegy pinned to the wall. We've torn out the pages. We pinned them to the wall. Okay. We pieced them together with little twine and and, and connected them together. Know. We've connected the dots as best we can. We put the puzzle together, and that puzzle is laid out before you. And we have to decide whether it's good.
0: Um, what's your question? Do you
1: like it? What do you
0: think? No, I like it. You do? I like it. Yeah. I was worried you wouldn't. No. Um. I know when it came to you after I I, I read it, I was like a little bit. I don't know. I think I just didn't have the words for what I had just experienced because this is a new medium for me.
1: That's something that I think is very interesting that you said something that you experienced because I've I've read it now about four or five times. Okay. And I still don't feel like I have a good grasp on it. It it feels like something I've endured or experienced.
0: I mean, in a way, it's like trying to digest in an artist and i'm going back to paintings that's just Mm -hmm. what i know best trying to absorb like a series that they made like a whole body of work yeah i'm sorry yeah a body of work each piece is a little bit different and you know there's a common theme but try and remember every detail and then kind of piece it all together you can't read the plaque you can't read the artist statement good luck
1: (laughs) (laughs) to me it's like one work though too and granted he made this over a period of a year but I, I kind of judge it as it is, like one painting.
0: Yeah, but there are also paintings out there, and we probably will cover one at some point where there are literally like, vignettes. Yeah, like you could absolutely like pick ten of these, ten of these uh, panels and put them on a painting, and those that there's a painting out there just like that. Absolutely. I just I had to I had to like reflect um, about what I had just read, right? I know mm-hmm. you just like I just said this. You you asked me, and I was like, I don't know, and I said it's kind of like watching a foreign film. <laughs> You are reading the subtitles, but you still like you're also trying to watch the action and the movement and you're going to miss things because you're reading the subtitles right. so you have to watch it again. So not only are you trying to read the subtitles, but you're also trying to interpret the body language of the actors and yeah. then also take in the cinematography. Right. So that's three things already. And then there's the whole story that's actually happening that you may or may not even understand. That it, it was a little bit overwhelming. That's I think what I that that is what I said to you. It was a little bit overwhelming.
1: Well, the emotion of the story is also overwhelming and the visual language is very overwhelming. But what did you think about the way that he illustrates?
0: It is very sensory. So the fingers, right? You think about, or the hands, you think about touch. Right. And then I notice the motion lines. I can imagine the wind in my hair or right. I can, or watching someone's hair get blown all over their face.
1: Another thing is the two main protagonists are never illustrated in such a depth that we understand what they look like. Their faces are always a little bit vague.
0: We can almost confuse them for one right. or the other sometimes. But it's
1: funny when you go to other characters like the, the publisher Garo, mm-hmm. uh, whoever he was talking to there, his face is totally obscured. Right. Or if you look at Suchiko's parents, they're illustrated in a hyper-realistic way, almost like they're copied from a photograph.
0: Right. That's true. So and
1: I, I think that's on purpose, obviously. I think at one point after we got done reading it, we sat down and we were like, can he draw? Can Hayashi I... draw? Is he a, is he good at rendering or is he just getting
0: lucky here? Maybe we don't see their features as much because they're not fully formed. Interesting. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Like, they don't they don't deserve a nose or a mouth because they they're don't not fully formed humans yet. They're not. They're very young. They're very naive.
1: Definitely, like, he's influenced by certain elements in Japanese printmaking. Mm -hmm. That's not just me saying that as somebody who's like, oh, he's Japanese, so he probably also likes Japanese printmaking. No, there's a lot of stuff going on there that is influenced either through manga or through, you know, direct inspiration from Japanese printmaking, like the gradients, the motion lines, the sort of using of big shapes of, well, black in this case or white in this case instead of color.
0: Another thing that reading this novel made me realize is that, oh, yeah, like this could look like this. I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but there's certain sounds that they were yeah. illustrated with text. And I'm like, oh yeah, that does kind of sound like that.
1: Yeah, the sounds Just are... This, again, sensory. Yeah.
0: Sensory, again.
1: The airplane I- I that shows up throughout the novel, like I don't so much read it as an airplane as I read it as the sound of something flying by and then having a sense memory of what that thing is. Mm-hmm. And then whatever your focus is at, at that time, if it's a quiet moment and you're really focused on the sound of that airplane, then maybe it appears much larger than it actually is in relationship to your body. If Ichiro is sitting in a room and he hears an airplane, that airplane might show up in the room as like just as big as as that apartment or whatever, you know, because it's taking up so much of his sensory space. Does that make sense? Yes. Another thing that I find really interesting is that, you know, we mentioned that hands seem to play a significant role. At times, the hands are drawn like flippantly almost like they don't feel like formed hands like they seem like gloves that are like too big for these people to be wearing like mickey yeah like mickey gloves and then at other times they're drawn in this very almost overly realistic way that ends up being awkward and weird looking because it's still kind of janky yeah it's still kind of janky
0: well like when they're falling in love under that cherry blossom tree their hands are huge yeah like come here baby and yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. like clunky giant clunky mitts they don't yeah. know what they're doing and by yeah, the end exactly. by the end though they're like holding the matches they're fidgeting with the matches and their hands have aged right you can yeah. see the the like wrinkles in the skin
1: yeah exactly <laughs> just like
0: my hands have aged after 2020 <laughs> <laughs> 10 years So Stephanie yes when
1: we take our pitchforks and we throw them at the hot air balloons from our little serfdoms below at, at, at those <laughs> who are lording from above and we pop every balloon and we build a new society. From, from the ashes. And we build an Art Slice Museum, and it's beautiful. It's on a hill. It's free and open to everyone. There's a moat around it. It's filled with candy. And condoms. And condoms. So you got to swim through it. You swim through and you get there, and you stop, and you have some really delicious candy. But you get there, and you realize, oh, shit. The museum's closed on Sundays. But oh, gotcha. what's that? <laughs> the Art Slice Museum library is still open. Cool. So we're going to go check out some books. Does this graphic novel belong in that library
0: yes yes it is it is of course Okay. Of course, because it's so weird. Um, and I know <laughs> yeah. I'm like a noob and all, all this. Like, I, I feel like a little bit of a poser, but I really enjoyed this. All you non manga readers, give it a chance. It's not that I ever was like, ew, manga. I just, it just, I was never around anyone who read it, you know? Yeah. I wasn't an illustration kid in art school. Right. So, not only has Hayashi left a huge impression on me. And me. Yeah. Not just us, but also on the main And patrimon- Excuse me, in the pantry, Mon. Who's? Th- oh, okay. That I sure. caught Okay, Russell. Um, so not only the three of us, but also manga culture and pop culture in the seventies. Hmm. Unfortunately, something else that has persisted as long as Hayashi's influence is that of the animators being severely underpaid. Uh, making less than what is considered to be below the poverty level in Japan.
1: Yeah, I think they make about one-, one third of what is considered the poverty level. They
0: make about $400 to
1: $600 a month. Like you'd make more working at McDonald's.
0: That is insane.
1: It really is. McDonald's it's in atrocious. America? And, yeah, in America. <laughs> I should specify. You don't get paid for being an artist anywhere. You do it because you love it. But when you're doing it for a company that is making money from it, that's ridiculous. And on that note, listeners, we would love to see your drawings, which we're not paying you for. Uh, (laughs) They're meant to be fun, and we love to see your drawings. And we want to thank some listeners for sending in. Listeners Andrew and Luciana for sending in some beautiful illustrations for the flag assignment from the Jasper Johns episode. And most recently, the tarot card assignment, which we're going to post really, really soon. They're really beautiful. I I love them. They made us laugh a lot. Thank you so much for sending them in. And listeners, feel free to send in any assignments, even if they're from older assignments. We know that it's a new show. So send them in. We'll post them on our website and on our Instagram page.
0: We don't care. We love to see it. Russell. Yeah. You look very excited over there.
1: Do I look excited? Well, I'm sketching. Uh, actually, I'm not sketching. My my pantry mom is sketching. Your pantry? How long am I going to run this joke? This joke has run its course, I feel like. Anyway, so your <laughs> art assignment this week, listeners, is to make your own sequential narrative. I know you couldn't have seen this coming, even from, like, 50 pages away, but basically what I'd like you to do is draw two to four panels on a single page or on Post-it notes or whatever the hell you got. Now, if you're having a hard time getting started... I would suggest thinking about your day from start to finish what happened in that day that you'd like to put in the sequential narrative? Like, did you brush your teeth? Was there a particularly beautiful sunset? And then think about the perspective from which you draw the narrative. Are you drawing it from first-hand perspective, like what you see in front of you? Like, I'm looking at Stephanie behind a giant pop shield. Or is it perhaps from your cat's perspective? Is your cat watching you from the floorboard and from on high and demanding treats? Um, (laughs) Just be creative with it. Do whatever the hell you want to. We'd love to see it. We'll post ours uh, here in a couple days.
0: And listeners, do not feel pressured to buy any special materials for this. You're welcome to, but you can definitely use anything you already have. And Stephanie, I believe we have some listener mail, our first fan art. Oh yes, we do. Yeah,
1: we. Stephanie and I laughed for about I want to say two hours when we saw this. Uh, we'll post it to this episode. It is a photoshopped image of Lenore Carrington, Elsie, on a throne of hyenas. <laughs> but thank you so much. Who was
0: the listener? Stuff. Um. So her name is apparently also Stephanie.
1: Yeah, so. is it spelled the same way? Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah, it is interesting.
1: Are you sending yourself fan mail?
0: And some of you who have written in have also mentioned how the show is helping you get through school, get through COVID, and we love to hear that. So thank you so much for your feedback.
1: Honestly, we started this to communicate with other artists who were like us, who weren't like, I don't know, (laughs) artists who were more goofy and fun like us. So it's really great to hear that. We love hearing from you all. And we're still doing the free stickers promotion. I I don't know. Is it a promotion? We're going to be doing it until the end of March or until we run out of stickers. But basically, leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts and send us a screenshot of your review with your address. We'll send you one sticker for completely free.
0: Yeah, you want these stickers. They're cool stickers. I'm I'm running out of surfaces to put them on (laughs) and stickers. So hurry up before I use them all up.
1: Stephanie, honestly, I have had to take them away from her. (laughs) If you've already left a review or you can't leave an Apple review, (laughs) just keep sharing the show. Honestly, that helps just as much. So that's going to do it for your art slice this week. We will see you next week probably with part two of the three witches probably. cross your fingers uh we want to make sure it's a good episode for you all if not we'll have something else for you
0: sure yeah let me just open the art slice pantry and serve up no another... don't open the art slice pantry because there's all the pan- the pantry monitor in there now oh, they're, they're okay. sleeping oh. See them in there. Okay. okay all right listeners your kid could not have painted that bye bye